This is The Deal with Nisim Black. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Nisim Black, a.k.a. God's Man, a.k.a. the Black Abraham Lincoln, a.k.a. Sammy Davis' cousin. I was born in Seattle to hip-hop parents, got in trouble as a kid, but I was able to make a major life turnaround. I was a Muslim in my younger years, became a Christian in my teens, only to discover that my soul was Jewish all along. So I picked up with my wife and my kids, and we moved to Israel where we are today. What I'm doing here on this podcast is I'm discussing everything I want to discuss. And that includes social issues, things about like racism, things about anti-Semitism, because I bear both those hats. These are things I want to talk about. I also want to discuss God. I feel like it's just not being talked about enough. And I can't call myself God's man if we're not speaking about God, right? Um, I think that the world has, especially after this crazy 2020 year we had, I feel like this world is really starting to calibrate and really trying to refigure out uh, who we are as individuals, who we are as in our own individual nations, and who we are as a humanity. I feel like there's so many different things to discuss, we have to discuss them. So, my guest today is not just any guest, he happens to be a good friend, who I bounce a lot of questions off my own self. His name is Rabbi Harry Rosenberg. He is a direct descendant of the Vilna Gaon, one of the most celebrated rabbis in history. Rabbi Rosenberg is a social entrepreneur whose many initiatives include iTribe, a social network mapping the lost tribes of Israel. And I thank you so much, Rabbi Rosenberg, for being here with me. It's a big honor. I mean, this is a dream come true for me. You're a you're a Jewish celebrity and, and a world celebrity. So for me, I'm just you know honored to be in your presence. I'm feeling grateful to be alive. Amazing. I'm happy to have a meaningful conversation now. Thank you for uh, for joining me. So let's start with the brief history lesson. So we know that the ten tribes of Israel were exiled and they were scattered all over the world. And two of them are currently still here intact to some degree: the tribe of Benjamin and Judah. And they have become what we know today as the Jewish people. My first question is: What happened to the other? That's right. Because the word Jew actually comes from Judah, from Judea. And so anyone who identifies as a Jew today, basically, um, I mean, until the last 60 or 70 years, was from that Judean exile. Now, the 10 tribes, just use your imagination for a second, take a glass bottle and slam it on the floor. And you watch all that glass go into four corners of the room. That's literally what happened to the 10 tribes of Israel. But we could still see locations that, based on the prophecies and the Tanakh and history, uh, where they were exiled to and where communities today could still be the descendants of those tribes. So that's one of the things that Moses or Moshe told us. If you go into the land and if you don't keep with the Torah to some degree, then this is going to happen. And everybody's been scattered all over the place. Looking at it now, though, so many different groups are saying, it, you know, we were a part of the Lost Tribes. We were a part of Lost Tribes. How do you go about verifying that? First of all, that's the most important thing because people have been coming up to me all these years and say, you know, Harry, how do you know if these guys really are or aren't? And then I, I come and I say very casually and calmly, well, the solution or for what we have to do next has nothing to do with the fact if they are or, or if they are not. Because either way, 
There is the same mechanism to rejoin the people of Israel, whether you are actually from the lost tribes of Israel or you are just a random human that would like to join the people of Israel. We don't differentiate. You don't get an easy pass. You don't get a backdoor pass. You got to do the same exact measurements, mechanisms to, to rejoin. I flipped the question back on them. Like, so tell me the relevance of that question. Like, dig deeper. Like, now that you're asking this question, what, what are you looking for based on your question? Because most of the time, you're not even looking in the right direction. Wow. That's amazing. It's not about uh, that ID card. I mean, but that makes your your mission like even more tricky because there's a history and there's scripture studies, but also now we have DNA testing and they help us figure out the connection between people and tribes. So can you tell us at least about that process? And even if it's really needed, like is it something that we should really be looking into? So I'll tell you two examples, one of why it could be necessary and one why it means nothing. At one hand, let's say you got Joseph, right? Yosef, the son of Jacob. He goes into Egypt, sold as a slave, rises to power. Next thing you know, he, he's marrying the daughter of an Egyptian priest. You know, he's at the top level of Egypt, second in power. And he's got two children there, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, let's say hypothetically, he never rejoined with the children of Israel. His children, his descendants, thousands of years later, would be millions and millions of kids who are from this one man, Joseph. And they're going to come up to us and say, hey, we're from the lost tribes of Israel. And we're going to say to them, no, you're not. You're a bunch of Egyptians. You have nothing to do with the tribes of Israel. And they say, no, do a DNA test. We don't have the ancient DNA of Joseph to know exactly because this is an offshoot of an Egyptian woman and one Israelite man. So it, the DNA may not even be enough at that time. So the mystery of the 10 tribes is you can't know exactly how, you know where they randomly got to and how they spread. But at the same time, we do see that amongst the Ashkenazi Jews, the Sephardic Jews, the Iraqi, from across the spectrum, there is similar markers that will say the European Jews and the ones in Babylon were once coming from the same branch. And not only that, we can identify that the Kohanim, the priests, which are from the children of Aaron, the brother of Moses, still have a unique marker that is found across uh, across the board. And like we spoke about before, it also happens to be found amongst tribes in Africa that people were very speculative about and said, oh, there's no way this tribe could be from the tribes of Israel. Boom, they got that same Y chromosome. Specifically speaking about the Lumba tribe, right? Yeah. I don't even know how I came across it. I think maybe somebody has sent me the video or something like that. And you would think that this tribe that's, I think, in West Africa, Zimbabwe, I think it was, right? That have been saying for years that they were Jewish. They had a whole story that they crossed over. Originally, they were led out by a group of Kohanim. I think this is during Bais Rishon, I think the first temple. Yeah, the, the, they didn't get to the, uh, South Africa during the first temple, but they had left Israel during first temple period. And they were led out, they said, by a group of, of Kohanim. And then they went first Yemen, and they were settled in Yemen for some time, and then crossed over and went into Zimbabwe. And the way that they were able to keep that tradition was by singing it. They teach it to the to the next generation. They sing it, and, and they have a whole tradition uh, based on song and, and giving over to the next generation. And they go there and they test them. I think it was over 50% of the males had the, the, the Kohanic, the priestly Gene, is that correct? Yeah, there was a Duke professor that went and did the DNA testing on them, and they showed that they all have the, the same DNA from coming from the, the region of the world known as Israel today. And I believe that they've identified at least to say 10% for sure of them had the Kohen gene. They didn't get enough samples to do on everyone, but they speculated it would have been more up to the number you said. And, but those, those people that had the genes today are still living in, in castes as priests would back in the ancient times where they're not owning land necessarily and the community has to support them and their job is to be the spiritual overseers of the community. 
um, yeah, it's fascinating. Really fascinating. So among your more like publicized uh, beliefs is that the Pashtun people of Afghanistan belong to the lost tribes of Israel. So how did you come to that conclusion? And how do many of the Pashtun people feel about this? Do they also share that same conviction? Uh, so interesting. And first of all, just before I start to make a difference, uh, the most or almost all the tribes that are in Africa today may not be from the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom, but they may be from the Judean exile, from the Judeans who fled south over different waves of time. So you see even Josephus says that uh, that Judeans were sold into slaves in, into Africa 2,000 years ago. And we know that the Kingdom of Solomon had of potential gold mines during the first temple time in Africa where they had Judeans going back and forth. So there is a lot of Judean presence in Africa. When we're dealing with the northern 10 tribes, the Assyrian kingdom exiled them 2,700 years ago, seven, almost 700 years before some of the tribes went into Africa, and he sent them to the Far East. Now, back then, they would displace tribes as opposed to destroy and kill them for a few reasons. One, it was more economical. You didn't have to you know, have blood and your soldiers dying and feeding the soldiers. You just intimidate them and relocate them. And secondly, from the Assyrian strategy, they were saying that we're getting invaded from the Far East by the Huns and the Mongols. Let's put a nation as a barrier between our kingdom and them so they'll have to deal with the Mongols and the invasions from the Far East. So the Israelites were sent towards Afghanistan 2,700 years ago. And it's interesting because in, in a few of the verses in Tanakh where it speaks about the location they were sent, it says, until this day. Now, between me and you, if I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to make up a religion or whatever it was, I would never put things in there that were so easily debunkable or be like, oh, there is no one there today or the people of Israel don't exist anymore. But lo and behold, not only are the people of Israel still alive, in those same locations of the exile is a 50 million person nation that has another name for them. Another name for an Afghan Pashtun would be Bani Yisrael, the children of Israel. And I'm, I'm driving in Queens, New York, or I'm driving in Brooklyn. It doesn't happen to happen in Israel for me because there's no Pashtun in Israel yet. But in Queens and Brooklyn, I'm driving around and I see, I could tell them by their outfits because they wear this, you know, tribal gear, goes to their knees. They look like they wear a talit, like a shawl. And I stopped I stop the car, I roll down the window. I go, hey. He goes, hey, what do you want? I go, are you from Afghanistan? And first, you know, he thinks he's about to get some like racial attack, you know, some, you know, terrorist attack. But I'm like, no, no, no. Listen, are you from Afghanistan? He says, yeah. I say, are you a Bani Israel? He says, yeah. <laughs> I go, then you're my cousin, right? He goes, yeah, of course. I get out of the car. I hold, uh, lock arms with him. We start doing a dance, circle dance. You know, we're hugging. Um, you know, I have, I have 100% success rate for asking Afghans if they're Bani Israel, if they're the children of Israel. Uh, but, but not only that, so this identity is across the board. It, it exists in the government of Afghanistan, the president's office, amongst all the tribal leaders. They know that they come from the ancient children of Israel. Uh, they kind of keep it to themselves. They're humble about it. But not only that, amongst the Afghans, they had a royal family that ruled until the 60s, 70s. This royal family claimed to be from the bloodline of, of Benjamin, from King Saul, and that the tribes chose this bloodline to rule over them. And they have family documents that I've seen that trace back thousands of years. And now the whole the whole family is in exile in California due to political uh, issues that they're in hiding, like a 20,000-person uh, clan in California that spans this royal family with unbelievable customs and traditions. And all they they're just crying to reunite with Judah, reunite with Israel. This is their hope and prayer. Wow, it's, it's so amazing 
to me that this has not been a major search, you know, nationwide search, I should say, for everybody because it's so important. Just as much as we have dedicated ourselves, certain groups, I would say, to rediscover techelis, to discover the blue string, right, that goes inside of our, our tzitzit strings, right? And all of these things that uh, we're told uh, will come and will reveal themselves as we get closer and closer to the final redemption. And and amongst those things are finding the tribes, or that the tribes will wake up and they will start to know who they are and start to, to come back to Israel. I think it's like amazing work that you're doing and that you're even focused on this. So I want to ask you about something that you said in the last answer you gave. Jews being sold into Africa. Now, one of the things that, you know, you and I have discussed before is that it wasn't like everybody woke up and said, listen, I'm just going to go to Africa. I'm going to go just take people or any, you know, something like that. Now, for the most part, the people that were taken as slaves um, from Africa during the Atlantic slave trade were already slaves. So you're talking about people that were Jews that were sold into slavery, as Josephus may say. So there's this major resurgence right now. I don't appreciate the way it comes out. Sometimes I'll be very honest. Um, different groups, Hebrew, Israel, uh, black, uh, black Hebrew Israelites, big push in the African-American community in America, which has even been spreading even into the entertainment industry of people saying that we belong to Judah. Can you speak on that for a minute? Yeah, there's a lot to unwind here, but it's something I think really beautiful and that needs to be spoken about um, for sure. I mean, now we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade and this potential connection to the tribes of Israel. Now, this is just, you know, we have to build it like, like a case, like what's actually happening here. Um, so we see, first of all, if anyone Googles Ministry of Diaspora of Israel government and puts the word Igbo, then you're going to find a report that's going to pop up by the government of Israel themselves who's reporting on tribes around the world. Let's say they're from the tribes of Israel. And the largest one that surfaces in Africa is the Igbo tribe. There's already 60, well, there's, you know, almost 50 million Igbo, but there's already 60 right. Orthodox Jewish communities out there where there's Torahs and Tefillin and Mezuzah. Oh, yeah. And they're praying in the same style. And they've... they've They've adapted all the laws of Israel, basically, the, of the Jewish people. And um, this is not the first time that's happened. If you look at a Bukharian Jew, they were really from the Ten Tribes, but around the year 800 or so, they had met up with the Gaonim of Babylon, the Babylonian rabbis, and they, they, they said, we got lost from the law, we're going to readopt the law. That's why you see a lot of Bukharian last names are Benjamini. So just because someone got disconnected from their tradition doesn't mean they don't have that root. But the government of Israel have to do in their research, sending anthropologists down there. There's books been written. They've said, this tribe seemingly comes straight out of the Israelite playbook. They're doing circumcision on the eighth day. They're not eating pig like the tribes around them. They're unique. They're even referred to as the Jews of Africa by their Nigerian neighbors, the Igbo tribe. But now you look at the transatlantic slave trade and you see because America kept great records and you know, at least or so around 25% of the slaves that came to America came from the, this one specific tribe. And we even know which ports in Virginia and in the, in the South they were taken to. And now all of a sudden, you see 400 years later, people starting to wake up and say, I'm from the children of Israel and I'm coming in. And you, and you know just as well as I know that a famous Jewish teaching says that if someone does convert, they're not called a convert. 
What is it? What does it say about them? Right, the the person was actually already Jewish, returning back to its root, returning back to its people. There's no such thing as a soul that converts that didn't have an origin in that position. Absolutely, the only way they could have ever rejoined it because they had a, a, an original position in that nation somehow through the scattering. So now that you see, uh, you like you said in the entertainment industry, even you know tweets from Kanye West and stuff coming out about it. I don't know what intention they have or what they know or don't know but for me in my head i always say there's no smoke without a fire these people are being drawn towards the nation of israel the people of israel the torah of israel they're coming from a location that we know that the government of israel is identifying acknowledging that the children of israel are here um so for me i'm like okay so my mind is blown and i spoke about that but then unfortunately or fortunately, whatever it is, you know, I don't believe in unfortunate things. Everything's for the good. But my words were taken a little bit out of context. So people started saying, oh, so Rabbi, you're saying that the, that the Africans are the real children of Israel and the Europeans are not. I said, okay, actually, I never even said that. I was just saying these are also from the scattered Israelites. Just because I say one doesn't negate another, that's, that's poor logic that people threw on me that I never said. So... If I throw a bottle on the floor and I smash it, it goes across the room, and I clean up one corner, I'm like, oh, guys, problem solved. Cleaned up the glass. I'm like, no, you just got a corner of it, but there's three other corners. So I think that the the, the community from the African-Americans in America now that have this identity, it's beautiful, and they have to pursue it, but they shouldn't allow that to discourage them from learning about the history of the evolution of Torah, how it was transmitted for 2,000 years in an unbroken chain. Uh, all those things are going to be beautiful, and there has to be a unity. But at the same time, I find myself, not, you know, not that many people alongside with me. I hope it will change, is I have tremendous amount of sympathy for this community. You know, I grew up in America in public school. I didn't join the yeshiva world until I was bar mitzvah, until I was 12, 13 years old. So I grew up in, you know, with Chinese, Indian, African, everyone in my class in public school. So I didn't see colors. I just saw humans. You know, I just saw, and that's how I, uh, that's how I was raised. And then all of a sudden... You start to learn about it. The first thing they taught me in school about African-Americans was they came off a ship. They didn't say where they came from, what happened, who was financing, who made money on it, which family. They didn't discuss that. So then you have to start asking yourself these questions of, hey, something unfair is kind of going on here. You know, and even when we did free them, we made rules that they had to have a few of them to vote as one person. Decade after decade, they were, they were just didn't have an edge on, on the situation they were in over here. They were had a disadvantage. So my heart, you know, pains for the state of this community. And, you know, I think they deserve some type of uh, I don't I don't throw out the word reparations lately, but some type of recognition or rectification to make right what was done wrong. And if this community could embrace that spiritual revolution, I think they will have the power within themselves to do it without needing a handout from anyone. I'm with you on that. I think one of the biggest things is for me, and I think you and I both share that, is that I see this also as a time where it's a time of spiritual revival. Um, and and I think it was in Zechariah, I forget the source, but I believe it's in, 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 in somewhere inside the prophets. It talks about the time that will come where there'll be 10 from each of the nations that come and grabs the, the tzitzit strings of a Jew and, and grab onto them and say, I want to go with you for I heard God is with you. So we already have been told that we're expecting some type of spiritual revolution uh, to take place in the world. A lot of these groups, they get to a certain place and then they stop. I was sitting in the studio one day with a good friend of mine who also, um, he was raised in the Nation of Islam. He had sort of deviated from that. He's been very successful in the music industry. 
um, and sort of now I found himself getting into the Hebrew Israelite um, doctrine. And he and I were in the studio, and my brother-in-law also. So we were having conversations. He was telling us certain verses. We were going through those verses. Then we would open it up in Hebrew and and read it back to him uh, from a, uh, from from the Hebrew. One of the things he said to us was is that the reason why I feel like you're important is because there's a lot of people who stop learning. You get to a certain place, and then you get to a place where you feel like, okay, I know it all already. Okay, we're the real Jews, and everybody else is, you know, going to hell. Whatever the case, I don't know what the whole story. Is. I feel like there's a certain place where people get to because there's a certain um, level of, of arrogance that we have that doesn't allow us to get over the next part to be able to be humble enough to say that, hold on, maybe I don't know everything. Okay, up until this point, maybe I have to stop here and I have to start asking questions. And I feel like one of the biggest barriers that people have had has just been color, you know, and a lack of education, lack of knowing that there are Jews from every single different type of background is not only Ashkenazi, there's also Taimani, there's also Moroccan Jews from um, Mizrahi Jews, you know, I mean, there's Jews from all over the place, right? And a lot of things have been fueled from a lot of that pain and a lot of that hurt that you were discussing. So it's almost hard sometimes to get over that, to be able to uh, humble oneself, to be able to ask questions in order to grow. So it's been one of my frustrations, but I'm very happy you spoke about it. Just to end on that, that's just a lot of trauma. Right. And this community is in fight or flight mode right now. You, you can't make these decisions under duress. It's like if I woke up in Nazi Germany and I was still Nazis walking around marching, you know, I'd be traumatized. Like, what's going on around here? It's crazy. So, you know, we're going to have to really figure this out. A lot of healing needs to take place. So let's assume that uh, someone in the Israeli government or some billionaire gave you an ultimate budget to pursue your passion, right, of bringing all the Jewish people back, right, all the tribes. What does that look like and what do you believe that you can do and how will it change the future of the Jewish world? Oh, man, that's a great question. First things first is you got to get an operation station. You know, you got to get guys sitting together at, at the round table like, you know, King Arthur and the Knights at the round table. So you got to get you got to get the the strongest most spiritual gentlemen of the generation together at a table that's the first step but personally I would continue this process or this dream that I've been working on of just combining this biblical prophecy with like woke technology so What's the, what's the future of the world supposed to look like? What are we doing? First of all, we're looking at these borders that's separating um, the Igbo from their neighbors and, and the Pashtun and even the Jews in Israel. These were all British borders that some European guys drew around the world because they were on a power trip. So, like, the first things first is we got to do some rollbacks, you know, roll back some of this evil that was put on us for the benefit of for-profit companies. So the way that that, that happens, I think, is autonomous Israel, Israelite communities. Explain that. Explain that. Yeah, let's go into it. And I'm just going to try to keep making it more granular and granular because it's a lofty vision. But it, to me, it makes total sense. And to someone who's into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, it makes total sense because it's all about this term called the decentralization. Right now, it says in the Gemara, the, in the Talmud, thousands of years ago, that the difference between the redemption and not the redemption, is the yoke of the nations off our shoulders. Basically saying no more middlemen. Humans don't have middlemen anymore to give them what they need to survive and live. We have direct access to those things. So now let's say we have communities all around the world of Israelites who are existing through middlemen that make it harder for us to thrive, be free humans, and even connect with each other. So the first thing is you have to create a platform, uh, which is what I've been trying to do with the iTribe, is where communities could form, you know, 
let's say let's say I was in your neighborhood. We have 15, 20 guys. All right, guys, we form a community. Now, what's the next thing a community should be doing? We have, first of all, we have to get a pool some resources together. So let's create a digital wallet, you know, that we could hold currency together. We could find sister cities to sponsor and partner. Or you and I could pool capital together and we could put it in. What's the first thing you buy for a group of 10 men? Well, we're going to need electricity. Okay, we got to generate some electricity, some solar energy, some wind energy, bicycle turbines, whatever it is. Once you got electricity, you could start cleaning and pumping water and filtering water, making it clean. Once you got clean water, we got the greenhouses, we got fish. We, it, it, there's levels to an evolution where community says, we are not being poisoned anymore by middlemen companies keeping us in this rat race system. We are now creating our own entity, our own realities, and we're doing it in a cohesive network with communities around the world. So it seems to me that, the, that the, this is an opportunity where you have one family scattered around the world but they're called this, and these guys are called this, and we're not building. We're not. What happens if we all locked arms? What happens if we all hold hands? Then we take that power back. Then there's no one who could rule over us. So I don't see this as going into like a metaphysical fantasy land of this paradise on earth without jumping through some middle phases of, hey, we got to do this together, guys. We got to figure this out. Right. So right. the first thing I want to do is just get more voices into the mix because there's power in numbers. Right. And there's too much evil in the world today for me to say to someone, well, I don't believe your bloodline's authentic. But wait, what does it have to do with me and you uniting to decentralize and, and, and fight a, the battle for the good people? Right, right. You know, I've, I've even said this, you know, I mean, I guess a separate conversation, but uh, uh, just referring to the Christian world, right? And I actually was asked this in an interview also, too. It's just sort of like, what about do a song with a Kanye? Would you do a song with a Lecrae? Or would you? And my biggest thing is right now that the world is experiencing so much evil and there's such a big war against God. You understand what I mean? How can we not unite over our common beliefs, you know what I'm saying, with the rest of the world to be able to f battle against that darkness and to be able to heal, you know, humanity together? I think it's it's beyond important. So even with that, so we're sadly living through unprecedented anti-Semitism. So do you think that these discoveries of all these different tribes and all these people feeling that they have Jewish identity, is that going to help anti-Semitism? Do you think it's going to create more empathy? Um, what do you think that that's going to do for the Jewish world? Right. Well, that's a good question also. I mean, I think a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding about anti-Semitism. You know, we even saw recently in Hollywood, there's been people who get in trouble for saying anti-Semitic remarks. When at the end of the day, I don't feel like they were necessarily so anti-Semitic. They were just trying to talk about open topics and reflect on some truths. But because the Jewish people, just like I said, the African people have their trauma, the Jewish people have their trauma also. Right. So, you know, we used to just be sitting in our village, you know, drinking wine, learning Torah, and some guy would come in and be like, oh, yeah, you guys, you know, drinking kids' blood and, and, and you're controlling the banks and be like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just a little farmer over here. Why do you have to kill me and rape my family? And so that trauma is like, okay, because maybe you had a claim against a few Jewish families that were in control at some parts of Europe. Doesn't mean you had to take that out on the small farmer villages. So the Jewish people ha do have that trauma. But I think that this whole this whole ingathering of the tribes of Israel, which most Jews don't realize is a prerequisite towards the redemption. Right. And they're like, oh, how do we know that? I'm like, okay, you say it every day in, in prayer before you say the Amidah, the Shmona Esrei in the morning. You say, Tzuri Yisrael, Kuma Be'ezrat Yisrael, Ufdei Kunumecha, Yehuda V'Yisrael. You speak about this re-gathering, re this family reunion of Yehuda and Israel every single day. So, and we see from the writings of the Vilna Gon, my ancestor, it says, until these tribes come back, we're not going to be redeemed. We have to just keep our tunnel vision and say, listen, 
we need to get back with our family. We're actually in a battle now where the enemy is deploying divide and conquer tactics against us. So we have to strategically be conscious of catching those tactics and negating them and coming to a great unity. So I think that the best way of fighting anti-Semitism is just actually to ignore them and just build that global family and let it just and let it fade. But it was like that time in the Torah that they drew a line in the sand and they're like, who who unto God is here? You know, come on to this side of the line. So I think that's kind of what's happening now, this line of righteousness that we could all agree on what righteousness is. And I don't mind if the if a black Hebrew Israelite thinks I'm a fake Jew, even though we have records that go back thousands of years to the first temple period. That doesn't offend me or bother me. You, that's cool. But as long as you're down to build with me and, and let's do something good, that's fine. And he, sh- he should also not be concerned what I think about him, because if you're so convinced that you're the ch- children of God, so own that narrative and play that role. We don't have to let these small nuances stop us from doing great things together. You know, and I have uh, ideas on anti-Semitism and really, you know, which families caused it and and the controversies and I can go into it. But now is not the time on this podcast. But I would say that from being a Jewish person from the Vilna Gones family, I, I may be one of the only type of people who can talk about it without getting cancel culture because, you know, I'm from I'm from within. So, you know, I, I can't hear. Um, But at the end of the day that we say the biggest battle that the Jewish people are going to face at the end of the days is not the Esau, it's not Ishmael, it's not any of those. It's the Erev Rav. It's the Vilna Gon says. It's the, it's the ones from amongst the Jewish people that don't have that pure soul that are still embedded in us causing issues. They're from the descendants of the original Egyptian mystical magic soothsayers that snuck out with Moses and Moses led them. But those souls are, and that energy is still amongst the Jewish people, amongst the Israel from the top down. And that's something that can be discussed in a healthy platform to give context to it, but certainly not in a way that's going to provide uh, more hate towards the Jewish people. If anything, it'll separate what should be shady and what should be holy, and we're going to get there. With God's help, we are going to get there. I thank you so much for joining me on this today. I really do appreciate it. Your answers were like fabulous, and we may have to continue this you know, off the podcast, <laughs> but I really appreciate it. Please, you should have every single blessing in the book. You should only go from strength to strength, and uh, you should have all the help and all the resources that you need to be able to to bring about uh, the ultimate redemption, your your piece of the ultimate redemption. So thank you so much. I mean, I appreciate that. And that was, just to end on that note, that was my, one of the issues I saw with with the concept of, you know, certain religions that say the Redeemer came already. I said, if you if you said the Redeemer came already, no one could believe that they could be the Redeemer. You know, you got little kids growing up who said, oh, someone already did the job, so it's not for me. Like, no, we all, we all have a piece of the Redeemer inside of us, and we all have to be that Redeemer. Right. So we should be worthy. Everyone should follow your footsteps, cling to truth, cling to humility, cling to honor and greatness, and the light you're spreading in this world is unprecedented. And just for me, it's an honor to be here and continue with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. This discussion with Rabbi Rosenberg was beyond healing for me for many different reasons. Uh, one is is because on my way and my journey into Judaism and all my studying and going through all the motions that one uh, goes through when they're on a journey, one thing that was very much so heavily intriguing not only intriguing, but felt very much so that it was a major item and a hot topic in terms of the things that God is at least concerned about is the lost tribes and how much we should be longing 
as a people to reunite with these tribes and reunite and, and to bring forth this ultimate redemption that we've been praying about for thousands of years. And the uh, neglect that has happened on our part as a nation really to really be involved with searching for you know these lost tribes and searching on bringing you know our brothers and sisters back to um, that which is theirs which is that relationship with God so I feel like it was beyond healing I feel like Rabbi Rosenberg is doing amazing work he's doing great work very important work um, that may um, not get the recognition that it should have so he 100% has my support and as I've said you know I like to end with a song the song that I'm thinking about right now actually happens to be one of my more favorite songs Let It Go is a song that means a lot to me I wrote it around last Sukkot um, I got the beat from my brother-in-law who actually made the music right around Sukkot time um, which is really a joyous time and it's a time where it's said to be that this major Shefa, our, our influx of godliness comes down into the world and the person's able to have you know, deeper perceptions. So this music came at a time also where I was really feeling like I have a mission. If you haven't figured out yet from you know listening to this podcast or whether you've been involved in, in my music or watch my interviews, I'm very mission oriented. I feel like what gives me so much drive to life is really the fact that I know that I'm affecting change in this world and being a part of God's major scheme. And whatever role I'm playing, I don't know. But I know the fact that I feel like God's using me is very huge for me. It gives me life. So this song, Let It Go, was sort of like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to let go of all the negativity and all the everything. In fact, I'm going to mute it. I'm going to turn it down and I'm going to keep pushing my, my way through. So please enjoy it. And until next time, be strong and only go from strength to strength. Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. It's a production of the Joshua Network. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Gilad Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. 
please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly, God's Man. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.